0: Only Holy God can deal with my failings, that's for sure, and I'm grateful He is willing and able and committed to doing just that. Well, He is good to us. I am so grateful for this church family and what God's done here over the years. One of the things I'm especially grateful for is how all the artistically gifted people in this church who also think biblically and want to uh, help us think that way too. I hope you haven't been ignoring this tree over here that Cliff Cramp made and then others have been adding to as we've gone through Genesis 1 through 11. I I realize today how I'm assuming intentionally it seems as if the, the branches of the tree that are walking with God and living in righteousness and depending on God seem to be crowded out by those who aren't. Have you noticed this? Cliff Cramp did this. It's good to know that a fine artist can use a skill saw too um, and and, uh, and build this tree for us, but then others have been added. Joyce Weaver made an ark today, I noticed. How cool is that? To illustrate our story this morning we're looking at in the Bible. But it can seem, though, can it, like the good is being crowded out in this world with the bad. It can seem like... Darkness is encroaching more and more in a way where light is losing the battle. It can seem like evil is triumphing over good. And there's lots of evidence for discouragement. There's lots of evidence for wondering if God really is alive and working out his redemptive plan in this world. Man, the world is a mess, isn't it? It doesn't mean there aren't good things going on but wow it's incredible every single day there's this onslaught of evil and darkness and just when you think it, it might be uh, receding uh, things happen in London like this week that just remind you of how alive and well evil is and it can seem like Goodness is being crowded out, and God isn't really winning. But we have a story this morning, this story of Noah that we'll continue thinking about this morning, that is helpful for us to realize that God is winning. God takes darkness and evil and sin very seriously, but he is winning, and one day will win completely. So if you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, we are going to continue with this story of Noah, a familiar story, one of the problems with understanding the Bible well that we can have is an overly uh, an overfamiliarity with it. We, we can be overly familiar with Bible stories and versions of them we 've heard through the years it 's amazing how the Noah stories about cute animals in a boat and um, and it, it actually misses the the, br- the, the brutal reality of Judgment against sin. It is, it is a devastating pronouncement of God on sin and rebellion and evil in this story as he brings judgment and punishment on the human race and saves one family in an ark in the midst of it. So uh, Noah and his family are on this boat that God told him to build and sure enough, the flood comes. And from beginning to end of their time on the ark is over a year. Almost a year and a month, I think, if you calculated it, ends up being. And so that's a long time to be on this ark after a long time of building this ark. And no doubt having his faith tested. Noah, this, this protagonist in this story, is in a very difficult situation. Here he is with his Family, even his extended family here on this ark with all these animals for over a year. You can imagine the challenges to his faith that he encountered leading up to this time on the ark and then during his time on the ark. Life, life is relentlessly difficult and no doubt it was for Noah in this situation. But we find a wonderful, gracious, restoring work of God here in chapter 8, let's go to God's word and let's do that by praying first. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to hear from you, to be encouraged and blessed, convicted and transformed by it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Roman uh, Genesis chapter 8, we will read all the way through this chapter and most of chapter 9 as well, so wake up, here we go. Genesis 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I gave you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That is the word of the Lord. And we have a lot to learn here. The the first point i hope you don't miss in this flood story it's really god's ark not noah's ark is that god hates sin god punishes sin indeed the wages of sin is death that's what the bible wants us to understand the bible goes to great lengths to help us understand how much god hates sin hates evil, hates rebellion against him and reacts against it, opposes it and judges it and punishes it. And this is a tough thing for us to come to terms with because we will do anything we can in our minds and hearts to rationalize our sin, to excuse our sin, to explain away our sin, to use euphemisms uh, instead of calling sin what it really is. And God doesn't do that and that's good news. Don't you love that God hates evil? Don't you love that God opposes anything that doesn't glorify Him? Don't you love that God is against anything that will destroy us, that will kill us, that will not fulfill His purpose for making everything? Don't you love that God is so committed to his self-glorifying purpose for creation and the goodness he intends for us to enjoy in our relationship with him within creation? Don't you love that he just can't turn a blind eye to sin and evil and anything that goes off the rails in glorifying him and in what's good for us? What kind of God would he be if he didn't hate sin and evil and rebellion He'd be a God who doesn't love us, who, who, who lets us settle for idols rather than worshiping the one true God, who lets us settle for a self-destructive path in our lives, and he won't do that. God hates sin. The flood account, it makes that as clear as it can. But in the midst of it all, it's not just bad news and then good news, but God's judgment of sin is good news. He's a good God who hates sin, and he reacts against it. But all the time, he's always working out his plan. Remember in Genesis 3, as soon as Adam and Eve decided to go their own way, God immediately starts providing for them, graciously, meeting their needs in their shame. He provides a covering for them, and he gives them a promise that one day, He will bring the seed of the woman who will reverse the curse and bring the ultimate covering of his righteousness to replace their disobedience. Always God is gracious. Always in the midst of judgment, he is working out a plan of redemption. And that's what we find in this story. The first point of the flood is man is sinful. And our hearts are prone to evil. And God judges and punishes our sinful rebellion. And that's good news. That's how we want him to be. And the sinful rebellion continues to grow as soon as it starts. And it seems like it's winning some of the time. Like it looks on this tree. And we see so quickly the sin goes from bad to worse. And we have a brother killing his own brother in Cain and Abel. We have the descendant of Cain, Lamech, who... who kills a young boy and is the first to commit bigamy and then he he boasts about these things and and he leads the way into greater and greater evil until we finally get to where we are in the story of Noah when in Genesis 6-5 it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and God will not let it be that way but he's gracious in the midst of it. Amazingly gracious. And he brings redemption out of the judgment. And he brings peace out of the chaos. I can't think of a more chaotic scene that's ever happened in human history than that flood coming and wiping out humanity, save one family. The sounds and the... the the difficulty of that scene, the chaos of that scene, as animals and humans alike are experiencing the judgment of God. But even then, there is peace that God is bringing. There's no word, as I studied these two chapters, that came to my mind more than the word peace, the word shalom, the word rest. That's what I believe the point of this morning's passage is. Rest, peace, Finally being at peace. In the midst of the chaos, we are to be people who have found peace with God and with our fellow man and with the future of everything. We have peace, amazing peace out of the chaos. And it all starts with chapter 8, verse 1. I love these words. I find such comfort in these words at the beginning of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. After over a year in the ark, I bet Noah wondered if God remembered him or if he had forgotten about him. Doesn't seem like God had spoken to him all that time. We don't have any evidence that God continued to speak to him as he had when he told him to make the ark in the first place. No doubt, Noah went through times of doubting and loneliness and fear and discouragement and wondered if God had forgotten about him. But now we get the wonderful news that God remembered Noah. The Bible talks about God this way a lot, but don't think it's because God lacks any knowledge ever. It doesn't mean he had forgotten literally about Noah. And now, oh yeah, Noah, that's not what's happening here. When the Bible says God remembers, it means he moves toward those who are suffering. He moves toward those in pain and misery and distress and neediness, and he moves toward them with his sleeves rolled up, ready out of a compassionate heart to do whatever they need in their misery, whatever they, they lack and long for in their distress, God is there for them. He is present with them. He is moving toward them like the prodigal son's father running down the road toward them. That's what it means to say God remembers them. It means he remembers and mercifully moves toward us in our struggles to meet our needs according to his promises. And this is what God's like. He calls Abraham out of Ur. And we're told he remembered Abraham every step along the way. He remembered Abraham and Sarah, even in their old age. And according to his promise to give them a son, he does. And Isaac is born. He remembers Hagar when when she is uh, by herself feeling lonely and at the end of her life. He remembers God's people. He remembers uh, Moses at the the burning bush after 40 years tending sheep in the wilderness, no doubt wondering what in the world had become of his life. He remembered Joseph. He he remembered all the people that he is committed to. He never forgets us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel um, like God has abandoned you sometimes? So many things can make us feel that way. A loss of a job. Lord, where are you? I need to support my family. I need a job. Where are you, Lord? Uh, The loss of health. I'm looking out and I see many of you. I know you've gone through difficult health challenges. In those times, we can feel as if God isn't there. He's left us. With relational problems or children who seem so wayward and hardened to the Lord and to us, we can say, Lord, where are you? Have you left me? Are you there? You said you wouldn't leave me, but it sure seems like you have. In so many of the struggles of life, in in our battles with sin that we encounter throughout our lives, it can seem like God has left us alone in those battles. We can wonder if he's with us, but God remembered Noah, and God remembers you this morning. Even if this morning is a time where you feel alone and you feel forsaken by him, you're not. He promises that. God remembered Noah. Noah. He remembers us. The psalmist says that God remembers the afflicted. He remembers us in our low estate. When we feel alone and forsaken, we never are. When God is our father and we are his. He didn't forget Daniel in the lion's den. He didn't forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And he doesn't forget us. He doesn't forget you ever. And how do we see God remembering Noah here? He doesn't just talk about these things theoretically. He gets about moving toward us and meeting our needs practically in in very real ways. And he does that in six ways for Noah and for us along the way. How is God for us? How does he bring peace in the midst of the chaos? Well, the first way that I want us to realize this morning that he does this is in ending the means of the judgment, the water. It was amazing to me how many words God uses to describe this kindness, this grace, this peace that he brings when he ends the water's judgment. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, halfway through. And God made a wind blow over the earth. Now, I hope you're already hearing re-creation language. I hope you're already thinking of Genesis 1 in the creation itself as the spirit, the ruach of God, is hovering over the waters. Here we have again that same word here, translated wind, but it's the same word for spirit. So in creation, the spirit is hovering over the waters, and now the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God is now acting in a way that's bringing about life out of judgment. Life when there had been destruction, he brings with a wind blowing. And what does he do? The waters subside. Listen to all these different words used to describe God bringing mercy and ending the means of judgment. The waters subside. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, so they subside The the, the windows of heaven closed. The rain from the heaven was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated. And then what happens in verse 4? The ark comes to rest. Do you hear all this effort to make sure we know God is ending the means of judgment? He's bringing the waters back from, from the recesses of the earth. He, and they're restrained now. They're subdued now. They're receding now. They're abating and the ark is coming to rest. This is peace language. The war is over. God's judgment is now receding. It's pulling back here. It's a glorious thing. And so he, the first way he provides for them is ending the means of judgment here. The second thing he does for us is give them signs. This dove that goes out. You see the sign that he gives of this dove in verse 11 that comes back with an olive branch in its mouth plucked from an olive uh, tree. He's, he's got this olive branch, this symbol of peace that we now ha, now see it to be. And the dove is this symbol of peace. The dove and the olive branch, olive branch in our culture, in the, in the Western world, is seen now for people who have no idea where it actually is coming from, a symbol of peace. It's an amazing thing. As I looked into this, I was fascinated by how embedded in our culture this is. Did you know what is in the right hand of in the great seal, the eagle, the, the, the American eagle? See what's in the right that's an olive branch is that amazing oh yes you're saying but he has arrows in the left talons yes he does and and there is strength but which direction is the eagle looking ah yes that's intentional people I'm told, I'm no interpreter, interpreter of art, but i read interpreters of art and know what they're talking about. That eagle's looking to the olive branch, not to the arrows, showing us that the peace is the goal, even of the war. Right? Peace is where we're heading. The, the eagle's not looking left, he's looking right. And do you know what I realized? That this is not only a national symbol, but would you look at the city of La Mirada, <laughs> mayor, that's a dove, isn't it? It's a dove. D- did you make this? You probably made the seal. Did you design this, Dave? No, no. Um, you were around in 60. Uh, yeah. Uh, look at that. Look, at, It's a dove. Is that cool? That our own city has the image of peace on our seal. And the image of peace on our national um, um, seal as well. These images drawn right from the Noah story now are embedded in our culture showing us that God is a God who brings peace and it shows up all over the place now. And that's not the only sign he gives us out of his kindness, but he gives another beautiful sign of the rainbow in chapter 9, right? As he makes a covenant promising that he will bring mercy, what does he say in verse 13? I have set a bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And he says, every time you look on that bow, that rainbow in the cloud, when there are clouds there, remember my goodness, my, my peace bringing mercy. Remember my commitment to bring peace, to bring mercy. And, and I don't have any reason to think rainbows didn't exist before this, but now they become a symbol. Of God's peace bringing mercy in our lives. I love rainbows. It's hard to think of anything more beautiful than rainbows. Maybe as, but not more. So Caroline had just gotten here, just been here a couple of months, and there was a, a rare rainstorm here in Southern California. And I looked up, and there was a rainbow over our house. So I grabbed my little eight-year-old daughter and did what every good father should do, climbed up on the roof. And there we are. Look at that. Yes, judge me if you want, but I am taking my kid on the roof to see that rainbow. I'm holding tightly onto her so that when I fall, we both plunge to our death. No, look, you got to take some risks in life, right? Um, But yes, look at that rainbow. I think there's actually two there, isn't there? My kid's going to see that rainbow here in the burbs. She's going to get out up there. And is that beautiful? A rainbow here in La Mirada. All these years later, after God says, this is a sign to you. This is something that occurs in nature. I want you to use as a symbol. And God does that, doesn't he? He brings reminders into our lives. Caroline turned 17 on Friday. She's not 17 there. No, um, she looks a little different now. Um, and, and she's, she's wonderfully 17. She's beautifully 17. But, but look at this rainbow. Isn't it amazing? God knows how forgetful we are. He knows that we not only need things like the Lord's Supper to remind us of his grace, like baptism to remind us of his grace. We need things built right into nature that he says, when you look at this, remember my faithfulness. Remember my goodness to you. Don't forget it. I'm good to you. And do you know, even more than rainbows, we as the people of God should serve as signs to his faithfulness, pointers to his faithfulness, like those Ebenezer stones uh, erected in in the Old Testament to remind God's people of his faithfulness. We need to be those reminders for each other because if the Bible says anything about human nature, it's that we're forgetful. And in his kindness, he, he causes the waters to recede and he gives them reminders, remembrances in this, this dove, in this olive branch. And how cool that La Mirada used to be an olive grove. Did you know that? Isn't that beautiful? I, you know, I, it, that's a cool thing. When you think about that, when you see some of the rare olive trees left, remind yourself of God's peace-bringing grace. So that's who he is. That's the God we serve. So he, the waters recede. In his kindness, he gives signs in his kindness. So he's saying to us, I know life is ugly, I know life is dark, but I want you to have these glimpses of my goodness and my hope bringing presence in your lives. And do you know all of human history ends with a rainbow? Did you know that? Revelation 4 3. And he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow. That had the appearance of an emerald. He grabs this sign, and there it is at the end of it all to, to show his very presence on his throne to us. And so, when you are tempted in your weariness or your loneliness or your discouragement to just quit and throw in the towel and think there's no hope, look at a rainbow. <laughs> Look at God's people that are even more beautiful and an even greater testimony of his faithfulness than a rainbow. That's why we can uh, obey the command in Galatians 6 to not grow weary in doing good. For in due time, if we don't grow weary, we will reap a harvest, he says. There remains for the people of God, Hebrews says, a Sabbath rest. That's the truth for us. Even though life can be wearisome, God brings peace in the midst of it. So the waters recede. He gives a sign to remind us, and then he talks to Noah. One one of the best things about God is he talks to us. He relates to us. He communicates. He did that with Adam and Eve. He does it with his people, and here he does it with Noah. Like in 7.1, when he says, go into the ark, he now says, come out of the ark. And he talks to him and then he continues talking to him and establishes a covenant. He speaks to him. And God's word is a gracious, peace-giving, perspective-providing, grace-giving reality he's given to us. God talks to us. And then something interesting happens here in chapter 9, something else that's gracious of him to do. The world's a hostile place and he creates, we're told, in the beginning of chapter 9, a fear in the beasts of the earth of us that keep them from destroying us. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. We could be consumed by the evil and hostility in this world and among the beasts of the earth, but he creates this fear that apparently is protective for us. And he gives us his law that protects us not just from beasts, but from one another. Right? That's what happens in chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. So in the midst of the hostility of this world, he instills a fear in the beasts of the earth, and he instills, hopefully, a fear in human beings through his law to not murder one another. And although there's plenty of murder, there's a law in place that's to serve as a protection from that. So we don't kill each other and into extinction. And there's something interesting that happens in nine six that I don't want us to miss, and that is that even after the fall, even after the destruction of the flood, we are still made in the image and likeness of God. And that becomes the basis for law. It becomes the basis for human dignity and, and protective laws we have. And actually... Holding intention that we're made in the image of God and incredibly good in some ways, but at the same time, utterly depraved and sinful, that's really at the heart of getting human nature, isn't it? That's what's at the heart of our whole governmental system, where we give votes to everybody but have checks and balances at every level. Something good about us and something terrible about us at the same time. You can't parent unless you understand that those little things running around your house are wonderful and depraved at the same time. You can't parent well if you don't do that. You can't do anything well if you don't understand human nature as having something wonderful as made in the image of God and something terrible at the very same time. And that's what we have here, a command against murder, capital punishment instituted here in the Old Covenant, because of what a human being is. When you destroy someone in murder, you're destroying the very image and likeness of God. And God takes that really seriously. So he speaks to us, and he protects us from animals and from one another. And finally, in his kindness, he makes a covenant with us. In his talking, he establishes a covenant. Uh, This is a major emphasis. He told us this was going to happen, He was going to make a covenant. Three times in our passage, he talks about this covenant in 8.17 and 9.1 and 7. And he promises, and he goes on continuing to talk about this promise, this commitment, this covenant to us. And we have in this commitment an ability then to be fruitful and multiply. Did you hear that Genesis 1 creation language that we have this fruitful and multiply? That's what's going to happen. We're going to be fruitful and multiply out of this commitment he makes to us, 9-1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, 9-7. Fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. He's he's starting over again with Noah and his faithfulness and his family and an earth that is now starting to sprout vegetation and bring forth more animal life and more human life. He's starting over again and establishes a covenant with his people. And this covenant has, has some wonderful promises in it. And here we see Noah is a... A furthering of Adam, in a sense, where, where Adam started it all and it all went, went astray and now he's restarting it all through Noah. But that's not the end of the story. Noah now becomes a type of Christ. He now is the one who starts creation over in a way that isn't the end of the story. He starts creation over in a way where Jesus finally brings the new heavens and the new earth, and he brings a redeemed humanity once and for all. That as wonderful as this recreation may be, Jesus is far greater still. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of this whole story, the ark as this image of God's saving work. He promises here to never universally judge the world in this way again. And what he's saying here in these covenant promises is I will give you protection from the animals. I will give you protection from one another. And in my covenant promises, I will also give you protection from me. That's what he says. He said, my judgment will not go out in the way it has this way again. And God remembers Noah. And he provides for him and he brings peace. And so what the result of this is, is beautiful in Noah's life. God remembers Noah, so Noah remembers God. It's really striking. The first thing Noah does when he gets out of that ark that he's been in for over a year. Imagine the list of things he was thinking of doing when he was finally set free from that boat. But the first thing he does is what? Build an altar. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. His first thought was Godward. His first act was worshipful. His first service was sacrificial. He recognizes God requires sacrifice for sin. He realizes that God deserves our worship and deserves gratitude for his provision. And that's what Noah does. And we find in verse 21 that God is pleased With this sacrifice. Another word that makes us think of peace. This word pleased of this this offering that we find here is, is the word for tranquility or peace or rest. God is at rest with this offering, with this sacrifice. That's how God responds to sacrifice for sin. He moves toward us. And he saves us. And Noah's act of sacrifice again is a foreshadowing of the ultimate provision for us in Christ. This sacrifice, this altar that he makes as an act of worship and gratitude and sacrifice again is just preparing us for the day when that will finally happen once and for all. Here's how Hebrews puts it. Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God still hates sin, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, our sin can be forgiven, can be atoned for. God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, but he deals with sin through his Son. The remedy to our sin is the sacrifice of Christ. God will never leave us or forsake us, and he's done everything he needs to in his covenant promises to fulfill those promises in his Son, Jesus. That's why God remembers us best and most of all in Jesus in the sending of his son, the one who is fulfilling these images of salvation here in this Noah story. We're told in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, someone who satisfies, The wrath of God who brings peace to God so that we can have peace with God because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Do you feel lonely and confused and like your life is nothing but chaos? Do you wonder if God's going to win at the end of it all? You don't have to because he already has one in his son. And we are called to trust his son the reason noah was a righteous man was not because of the amount of righteous things he had done but because as we're told he walked with god he depended on god he feared god and obeyed his laws out of that dependence and walking with him he is the man of faith then this is how hebrews 11 talks about noah by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. Noah was a man of faith. He didn't have his own righteousness upon which he depended. He looked to God and his provision for him by faith. And that's what we're called to. We find in God everything we need in Christ by faith. If you've never trusted Jesus this morning, please consider this morning turning from yourself and turning to God in his provision for you through his son. That's the only way to life. That's the only way to forgiveness is depending on his fully sufficient sacrifice. He died once for all you feel forgotten you aren't you feel abandoned you aren't listen to these words in Isaiah 54 would you turn there Isaiah 54 has this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness to us God's care for us when we feel completely abandoned and unfruitful and alone God never leaves us alone Listen to Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be no more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. Thank God for that. (laughs) And the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with other everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And look at this. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, And will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That is a beautiful and powerful glimpse into the very character of God, who has promised that when you trust his provision through his Son, when you go to that altar of sacrifice where God himself through his Son offers that offer of sacrifice, time may feel like there's a forsaking in this life, but ultimately we are never forsaken. We are never left by him. Why? Because his Son was forsaken by him on a cross when he was considered sinful and cursed in our place. The Father turned his face away so he could turn his face toward us. Jesus was forsaken so we could be accepted. That's the glorious news of the gospel. He will never leave us or forsake us. You can count on it. Lord, help us. We are frail and struggle with hopelessness and despair and anxiety and feelings of meaninglessness and that this all isn't adding up to anything worth it all. But thank you that you've told us that the glory to be revealed will not be worth comparing to the suffering in this life. Lord, help us to be people of hope and joy, and confidence, and purpose, knowing that you are our God, and you will deal with sin, and you have dealt with sin in your Son. Help us to trust you in Christ more than ever today, and be filled with songs of joy, and gratitude, and worship, and lives of humble obedience, trusting you more and more every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.